Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. For many people, the story of Jesus' birth is all they know about Christianity. Uh, Luke is the author of this gospel. He also wrote the book of Acts. If you lay out page by page, you find that Luke wrote most of the New Testament as far as the amount of content. His purpose in the opening chapters is to give an account of what Jesus did and said. Well, that's really throughout his book, but he begins here at the beginning with the supernatural events leading up to the birth of Jesus. Two weeks ago, we looked at the earlier part of, of this chapter where the angel Gabriel appeared to uh, a Jewish priest named Zechariah. We met Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Now that action took place primarily in Jerusalem and in an unnamed town in Judea. Now, I'm going to begin reading in verse 26. This is six months later. So between verse 24 and so to verses 26 and following, six months have passed. And the scene switches to a little town called Nazareth in Galilee. And we're going to find young Mary, who is a relative of Elizabeth. And she's been pledged to be married to Joseph. Hear God's word beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The word angel means messenger. Uh, Angels are messengers from God. There are two angels in the Bible who are named, or that we're told their names. One of those is Gabriel that we meet here, and the other is Michael. Gabriel is referenced in several passages in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New. We find that he had various functions that he performed. When we come to the New Testament, he is the angel who stands in the presence of God. He holds a very specially high position in the ranks of the angels. And so as his role as a messenger 
he brings a message now to Mary, even as he had done to Zechariah before. And what he says is just amazing. And he tells her in a special way she has found favor with God. And on hearing this message, Mary essentially is speechless. There's no indication she was speechless at Gabriel's appearance, but at his message. What he told her is what astounded her and stunned her so much. The fact that she had found favor with God. Mary was truly humble. So that was his message. But he tells her about there's going to be a miracle that will take place. And when Mary understands what he is saying, in verse 34, her first words back are, How will this be, since I am a virgin? So Mary believes him. She doesn't doubt him, as Zechariah had done. But she's puzzled as to how what he says is going to happen will happen. And so the angel's answer to Mary is also remarkable. He says there's going to be more or less a biological miracle resulting in what we refer back to as the virgin birth. And the power by which God would accomplish this was the power of the Holy Spirit. But underlying this, Gabriel states, nothing is impossible with God. And it's stated as a perpetual principle. Third part of the message is the Messiah. The Old Testament is full of prophecies about the one that God had promised, the anointed one, the Messiah. And those prophecies begin in the third chapter of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And from that point onward, detail after detail was added until we come towards the last of the prophecies before the Messiah would come. Psalms tells us that this one would be holy in his character. Now that would have been impossible to accomplish if he was conceived in the normal way. He was to be without human sin because he was to be without a human father. And he would be called the son of God, it says here in verse 35. Fourth observation is Mary accepts this mystery because to her it is a mystery. However marvelous it all sounded, she did not have the answers. It was all very mysterious. Yet at the end of the day, she accepts it and she says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Even though she did not understand what was going to happen, she did not understand the details, she accepted it. And that is a very, very important lesson for all of us who call ourselves Christians. I'll say more about that later. Now, when the angel says nothing is impossible with God, I think my immediate reading of what he has told her is, well, he's referring strictly to the virgin birth. But there are numerous impossibilities in the message that he's given her. The virgin birth is one of those. So here is this young Jewish teen, not married, had never been involved sexually with a man, and she is being asked to believe that she will conceive a child. You want to know who the first person was who questioned the virgin birth? It was Mary. She's the first person asked to believe in it. The second person asked to believe in the virgin birth 
was the man to whom she was betrothed, Joseph. Now Matthew, Luke doesn't go into this, but in the Gospel of Matthew, which is a parallel passage in chapter 1, verse 19, it gives Joseph's response after Mary had told him the message. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now this divorce, engagement, betrothal, married, not married, is confusing to us because we are in a culture that has engagement and marriage. And their system was very different. Let me explain it to you. Betrothal was different from the engagement like we have today. Customarily in those times in the Jewish culture, the parents of a young man would choose the young woman to be engaged to their son. Then they would move to the second stage, which was betrothal. That involved official arrangements, a prenuptial agreement with witnesses there, and this became a legally binding contract, and it could only be broken by a formal process of divorce. Now, there's, you get the picture? That's what was betrothal. Witnesses, contract, prenuptial agreement, binding. And the only way you could then break it was through a formal process of divorce. But this is the part that's confusing to us that we have a hard time relating to. Betrothed partners were referred to as husband and wife. But at that point, they were still not considered married, and therefore they were not to be having sexual relations because that was considered immoral. That's what confuses us. Wait, they're called husband and wife. Joseph's referred to as her husband, but they're really not married in the fullest sense of the word. Also, during betrothal, if one of them was sexually unfaithful, it was considered adultery. And under the Old Testament law, it carried the death sentence by stoning. Now that's the picture. That's the backdrop to why it says Joseph intended to maintain his personal righteousness, yet he desired to show mercy to Mary and compassion because to him she appeared to be an adulteress, that she had been unfaithful during the betrothal. So let me just say this. If you are a person who has has a problem accepting the reality of the virgin birth, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Now just imagine the conversation when Mary broke the news. What? What are you asking me to believe? Mary, you're telling me, it's obvious now, I think she's like four months, they think she's four months along, You're going to have a child, and I'm to believe an angel told you this, and this is of the Holy Spirit. Can't you at least tell me the truth? From all indication, he just thought she was lying, or delusional, or something. He did not, put it this way, he did not believe what she was saying. So what changed his mind? Well, Matthew chapter (laughs) 1 tells us. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He just reiterated, the angel reiterated what Mary had told him. 
And the very next verse in Matthew says, Joseph got up and he, he obeyed just like that. So if you are sitting here today struggling perhaps intellectually with the virgin birth and you've kept it to yourself, especially here at church, you don't say anything about it, well, let me ask you a question or several questions. Christians believe that Mary gave birth to the sinless Son of God. Now, which is harder to believe? That God came in the flesh in Jesus? Or that he was without sin? Or is it harder to believe that he came in the flesh miraculously? Maybe you struggle with the idea of Noah and the ark or such miracles as that. Look, we worship a God. Let's go back to the very beginning. Let's don't even get into those details. We believe God spoke the universe into existence. Now, that's a little bit more. I mean, I would say that's a bigger miracle than the idea of a virgin birth. Out of nothing. He made something out of nothing with his word. This is not a problem for Christians. It's a proof of his infinity and his all power, his omnipotence. So how will this be since I am a virgin, she says. So if you have questions, stand in line. You're behind Mary and you're behind Joseph. And yet God's sovereignty is displayed at this point. And so we do not despise mysteries when we don't have the answers. Now, that's the first impossibility, the virgin birth. The second is the whole idea of an incarnation of God becoming man. She was also being asked to believe in God becoming man, the incarnation. And Gabriel refers to this by mentioning the Holy One, the Son of God. Now, these terms are never used of an, a mere man. Now, this was an amazing impossibility. It seemed as impossible to the Jews as to anyone else, but it was especially impossible for the Greeks, for the culture of the first century in the Greek world. Because in the Greek philosophy, the principle that distinguished God most between God and man was that God was spirit, while all people, man, men, women, children, we are a combination of spirit and flesh, or matter. But in their mind, spirit was good, Flesh was evil. That's very important to understand then why the idea of the incarnation was difficult for them. So for the Greeks, humans could aspire to noble thoughts and even noble actions, while at the same time, somehow we always fail to achieve them. And so to them, an incarnation was impossible. This understanding made acceptance of a doctrine like the Incarnation, impossible. For what would be involved if the Incarnation were true, according to Greek philosophy, is that God, who was good, would have to link up with flesh, which was evil. And he would have to become bad. Now, that was in the Greek mind. So in their mind, if God is to remain God, then there can be no Incarnation. Salvation must be provided not by, by God becoming man, but by men and women becoming God. It's because we would have to escape the curse of bodily existence. So in that culture, the idea of an incarnation was an impossibility. The third impossibility, besides the virgin birth and the incarnation, was this idea of salvation. Mary later says in this chapter, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
How is this possible? How can a holy God save sinners? Remember the story of the woman caught in adultery later on in the Gospels. She was a sinner, they said. They had witnesses. They knew that in the Mosaic law, it had commanded that such a person should be stoned to death. So what would Jesus say? Should they stone her and fulfill the law of God? Or should they be merciful? Jesus had a reputation for being merciful and let her go. The men that were accusing her were blind to the fact that they too were sinners. But they hit upon a real problem. God is just. His law demands punishment for sin. The woman had broken that law. She was a sinner. She must be punished. Of course, Jesus wanted to be merciful, don't we all? But the law said someone had to die. And so how then is salvation wrought? And the gospel tells us the answer is in the atonement. The righteous son of God dying in the place for sinners through his substitute. But at the beginning, this was not clear. And the problem was a big one. So that also is something that's not impossible for God. So the virgin birth was an impossibility. The incarnation was an impossibility. Salvation was an impossibility. And last of all, the change in human hearts was a final impossibility. The hearts of men and women are hard. But the angel says to Mary, nothing is impossible with God, nothing at all. Let me tell you in a little bit of an overview of what the Bible says about God being the God of the impossible. In the Gospels, we have the rich young ruler, this rich young man who comes to Jesus, and you know the story. He, he wants to know what he needs to do to add to his list of commands that he has obeyed. Is there more he needs to do in order to gain heaven? Very much a works mentality. And Jesus, recognizing that he's very wealthy, says he should sell everything he has and give it to the poor and come and follow Jesus. He's not saying that's the way of salvation. He was pointing out that this man was not as righteous as he thought he was because his idolatry was material things. And that is what he walked off to worship after that conversation. When he leaves, the disciples are totally perplexed. And it says in the Gospel of Mark how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are very perceptive at this point, enough to recognize that this was a problem not just for rich people, but for all people. So they ask in amazement, who then can be saved? It was a genuine question. If it's impossible for that particular person and for all rich people, how can anybody be saved? And that's when Jesus says the same words that the angel said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. What does he mean? God is not bound by human limitations. That's what it means. God is not bound by the limits that you have on you. He does not have the same limitations that you and I have. That is why when we're dealing with the way God works in human hearts, we're not just talking about psychology and sociology or even morality or anything that's simply human. We're dealing with God. We have a power much greater than you or me because we do not live in a closed universe. In a closed universe, the cosmos is all that there is, but that's not our universe. We are in one which an infinite God, he's ultimate and he's determinate. If it was a closed universe, as many people think, 
then we only look to ourselves for our answers and nothing miraculous. But the scriptures teach that this is not a closed universe. God, that the universe has been created by God and he is actively involved and engaged and not only are things possible, even the impossible can even be expected. A virgin birth? Why not? God is not bound by the laws of human conception. He made the laws. He can operate within them or outside the very laws that he made. With God, all things are possible. An incarnation? Impossible? No. Why not? Because God has made us in his image originally. He can take man to himself through the birth of Jesus. And he can do so and not contaminate himself with sin or evil, as the Greeks thought. The salvation of people? Impossible? No. The atonement is God's answer to this seemingly impossible problem. The hardness of the human heart, changing human hearts? He created the human heart. He can change hearts as easily as he can change the wind. And that's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Don't you know someone that's a believer now that you would have said that was the last person on earth? Al Baker is going to be here in a few weeks to preach. Some of you here remember Al Baker. Al, Al and I were in college. He was like a senior when I was a freshman. Al was a baseball player at the University of Alabama. And when Randy Pope was a student, many of you know Randy, he asked some guys, who is the toughest person in, among the athletes that's most resistant to the gospel? That's who I'd like to talk to. And everybody looked at themselves and said, we have got the guy. His name's Al Baker. And Al was converted. And uh, Al has a real passion now for revival and prayer and awakening. And he's going to be here to preach because he's speaking to our presbytery in a few weeks. But I think about that. That's the person they would said, that person will never come to faith in Christ. That's what Christ was saying to Nicodemus. The wind blows where it wishes. So is everyone born of the Spirit. So... Let's switch gears from the impossible to the possible. All things are possible. Now, we don't take this text and this conversation with Mary and say, oh, every day we should expect miracles then. <clears throat> we should expect God to overturn the laws of nature like he did with, in Mary's case. And that would be a wrong application. By definition, most of the miracles, real miracles in the Bible, I'm not talking about a... Something that, something that is just a real clear answer to prayer that may not be miraculous. In other words, usually in miracles, God, God does supernatural things that are beyond the ability of humans to bring them about, such as this with Mary. But by definition, those are one-of-a-kind events. Jesus came into the world by human birth one time, and he's not going to do that again. He will not return that way when he returns. But we still need to apply the text. So here's a couple of suggestions. Anything God promises in his word is possible, regardless of how impossible it may seem to you now. Anything God promises in his word is possible, even though it may seem impossible to you now. For example, and these are some simple ones. 
He does not break his word. Take the example in Matthew. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's an invitation. Come to me, Jesus said. And in all senses of the word, from spiritual burdens to guilt to burdens about all sorts of things, he says, take my yoke upon upon you and you will find that it is light. Philippians 4, here's another promise. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition and thanksgiving, make your request known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God can give you peace when you would say it's not possible for me to have peace. I am so burdened down. I am so anxious about whatever I'm anxious about. And yet he invites you to roll that onto him, to cast that onto him. And he promises. And you could say that would be impossible. No, it's very possible. The second thing of application is God's will for your life is possible even though at times what God is asking you to do may not seem possible. I think we usually have trouble with this because we confuse our plans with God's plans. And when we have trouble achieving our goals, our human goals, we begin to doubt God's ability. The first verses I ever memorized were Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Do not lean on your own understanding, he tells us. So there we are to, to trust him, and he will bring things about. Now here's, are y'all still with me? Okay, most, the term is vision, most most times when God spoke to a person in the Bible like this with Mary, the speaking deals with the end result. He talks that you will bear a son and you will call his name, you know, Jesus, the Holy One, so forth. And it tells the commands and the vision deals with the end result, but rarely does it go into the how it's going to happen. So when Mary asked, how can this be since I am a virgin... Gabriel answers, he gives her a little bit about the Holy Spirit, but he basically says the principle, nothing is impossible with God. But he doesn't say, well, here's how it's going to happen. Joseph's going to doubt it, but then the angel's going to appear to him, and then you're going to go to Bethlehem because, you know, the, the, the emperor declares a, wants a, a census, and then you're going to have to flee it. None of that. None of that is dealt with. We know the rest of the story. Those are the hows. God deals with the end result, the what. But how is never a problem with God. We tend to focus on the how rather than the what. Example, Moses was told to lead God's people out of Egypt. That was the end. That was the what. You will deliver my people. God, though, took care of the hows that showed up how they left Egypt, at the Red Sea, in the wilderness, Moses did not have to come up with the way that the Israelites would get out of the wilderness. He was only to obey the end. This is where God, what God's going to do. When David was young and he was told that he would become king of Israel, that was the end. That was the what. 
but he was not told the details of how it would happen. It was not his responsibility to figure out how to get King Saul off the throne so that he would become king. When Jesus told the disciples to provide food for the hungry multitude, he just says, feed them. But it was not their responsibility to figure out all the details to make it happen. When God tells us to make disciples of all nations, that is the end. That is the vision. And it gets, mentions baptizing and teaching and so forth. Our responsibility is to obey. But he has to work out the hows of making it happen. I believe those of us who are men have such a difficult time with obedience and trust because we are how-oriented. Chip, let's, uh, let's have a program here at the church in January. We're going to do this, this, and this. Okay, how much will it cost? What's our backup plan? What's our backup plan to the backup plan? What do we do then? How do we organize this? I mean, what kind of structural leadership do we need? What? Th that is second nature to me. I mean, I, and probably to, to, to most men here, we are process-oriented. Maybe you women are too. I'm not, I'm just... I'm a man, and so I think as a man, and I watch men. And I think some, often our, our, our inability or our resistance to really trusting God, especially with things that are difficult, is, is not that we doubt that it would be a good end, but we really want to know all the hows of, of what's going to happen to get us there. And in Scripture, God almost never gives the hows. That's where the trust comes in that the Lord is going to accomplish it. You need to trust God with the end and commit to serve him. And then he takes care of the hows of bringing that about. That is precisely what we see in Mary. Gabriel's are not the last words in this account. Mary's are. You realize that? Mary has the last word. So immediately after Gabriel has brought, brought his message, Mary responds, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. What an expression of submission to God's will. Like I said earlier, we know the rest of the story. But think, think of the faith and trust represented by that expression by Mary to Gabriel when she did not know, she didn't know what was going to happen to her. Would she be called an adulterer? Would Joseph have nothing more to do with her? The loss of their engagement? Maybe possibly death. Adulterers could be stoned, and yet what we see, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. James Boyce said, this is the secret of a happy, blessed, and fruitful life. If we go our own way, we shall be like lost sheep, far from home, frustrated and helpless. But if we respond like Mary, we shall be blessed by God. And who knows what God will yet do with us? Mary submitted herself to God, and God sent the Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father, we uh, thank you for the example of you working trust and faith in another believer's heart, in this case with Mary and with Joseph. And we see that Christ came, our Redeemer came, even amidst great questions and great perplexity and shrouded in mystery. And for those of us that perhaps struggle with certain aspects of the scriptures that we don't understand. We pray you give us the ability to trust you with the end result and depend on you for the house, whether it's loving our wife 
whether it's being committed to you, whether it's trusting you with finances and tithing and giving, whether it's commitments we've made that we know you've led us to, but we don't know how we're going to fulfill those, we pray for dependence and submissiveness to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.